Hello, I'm Stephen Schleicher, and you're about to listen to part two in our series on the DC implosion. If you haven't listened to part one, the DC explosion, it might be good to stop right here and go back and listen to that episode and then return here. I mean, we could wait, but you know I'm not going to. I'm just going to continue talking. The last time we saw DC Comics, they were about to launch a major publishing initiative that would not only change how DC Comics operated, but it would kind of force all the other publishers to change and adopt to the times as well. It was a major endeavor, and unfortunately, it didn't happen. In this episode, we're going to take a look at maybe one of the major reasons why DC Comics imploded in the 1970s. Between October 1976 and January 1977, a strong ridge of pressure over western North America moved the polar vortex from its normal position in southern Canada, causing Arctic air to plunge into the central and eastern parts of the United States. It was so cold that on January 20th, 1977, snowfall was reported as far south as the Bahamas. For a kid of six years old, the winter of 1976-1977 was great! Ice skating on the family pond, snow for snowmen, and even a few days out of school, which allowed my friend Tim and I to take the giant hill between our homes and sled down the road for hours on end. Ottawa and Franklin County apparently have received so much snow as any area in the state. A spokesman at the city power plant here said a total of five inches of fresh snow had fallen by 7 a.m. Lacine in east-central Kansas and Baileyville in the northeast also reported five inches of new snow on the ground, according to the National Weather Service. Unquote. That's from the Ottawa Herald, January 4th, 1977. For the rest of the country, especially in the New York State area, it was much worse. By late January, the National Guard had been called in to help with snow removal. The National Weather Service reported 25-foot drifts in metropolitan Buffalo, New York, while the blizzard of January 27th and 28th dropped 12 inches of new snowfall on the city overnight. National Weather Service meteorologist Ben Kolker said, quote, The wind was so strong that it packed the snow. It broke the snow crystals up so they really packed in solidly, almost like a form of cement, which made it nearly impossible to clear the streets. Unquote. That is from The White Death, The Blizzard of 77 by Erno Rossi, published in 1999. People across the East Coast found themselves without power and heat. On the morning of January 29, 1977, it was estimated that 6,000 cars were stranded in the streets of Buffalo, requiring the fire departments to use their trucks to ram vehicles out of the way in order to get to homes that had caught fire when people attempted desperately to stave off the cold temperatures that the night before had dropped to minus 60 degrees below Fahrenheit. That's minus 57 degrees Celsius, which, regardless of which measuring system you use, is pretty darn cold. President Jimmy Carter declared the counties of Cattaraugus, Chautauqua, Erie, Genesee, Niagara, Orleans, and Wyoming in western New York, and the counties of Jefferson and Lewis in northern New York as major disaster areas. This was the first time a snowstorm was declared a federal disaster area. President Carter stated that 11 states were, quote, suffering from some degree of crisis, unquote, from the weather, and that six other states were severely afflicted by blizzard conditions. In New Jersey, Governor Brendan Byrne invoked a wartime law to order all homeowners to turn their thermostats down to 65 degrees during the day and to 60 degrees at night to keep the already taxed power grid from collapsing. 
In Philadelphia, commercial and industrial users of natural gas were forced to close until Monday, January 31st because of natural gas shortages. In Ohio, Governor Rhodes closed all non-essential businesses. And sadly, in Sullivan, Illinois, two women were found frozen to death in their car, according to reports in the New York Daily News. It was a storm to remember. And while I was able to have a few days off school while our area cleaned up, it took those affected in the New York region much longer than a few days. It wasn't until February 2, 1977, that mail service in Buffalo was able to resume. Buffalo, New York would record 155 inches of snow that winter alone. In New York City, the home of comics publishers DC Comics and Marvel Comics, snow fell or was on the ground from January 1st until January 16th, with temperatures dropping below the mean for that time period. Most newspapers were reporting on the news in Buffalo, so for New York City proper, I don't know if that was business as usual or something that kept residents at home and out of the cold. One of the biggest events to plague the Carter administration was the gas and oil shortage. And this weather disaster put an even greater strain on heating oil access. With highways and interstates shut down, even for a few days, one can imagine that the ability to get supplies and resources from one city to the next, or port to port, would have been severely hampered, not only in the northeastern portions of the United States, but those delays would ripple across the country as truck drivers were unable to deliver goods. The post office couldn't deliver mail, and even local newsstands couldn't get comic books out to the public. All of us must learn to waste less energy. Simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. There's no way that I or anyone else in the government can solve our energy problems if you are not willing to help. I know that we can meet this energy challenge if the burden is borne fairly among all our people. And if we realize that in order to solve our energy problems, we need not sacrifice the quality of our lives. In 2020, the world shut down due to COVID-19, and we were able to witness for ourselves how the supply chain was hampered on a global scale. Even though it was a limited area with 1970s-era technology, we can imagine how the supply chain impacted a large part of the nation. With the weather disaster costing tens of millions of dollars and the loss of life, comic books arriving on time for a couple of weeks were probably not that big of a deal, and celebrating a few days out of school due to a major blizzard kind of seems selfish and childish in hindsight. If the winter storm of 1976 and 1977 seemed like a magnificent stunt your friend just performed for you and your buddies, then the winter of 1977 and 1978 was that drunk friend of yours who said, Here, hold my beer! This time, instead of focusing its fury on northeastern portions of the United States, the winter of 1978 focused its attention on the central portion of the country. Temperatures once again dropped to below zero, minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit in some places, and frozen and burst pipes caused businesses and schools to close across the region. Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, and yes, even Kansas were pummeled with massive snowfall and produced one of the coldest winters on record in all states east of the Rocky Mountains except Maine, which I always think of as a perpetual deep freeze anyway. Apologize to those of you who are Maine. I know you have a lovely state. A portion of the National Weather Service in Indianapolis report for the events of January 25th through the 27th, 1978, reads, At the time the blizzard warning was issued, winds were a mere 12 miles per hour. 
The winds approached 50 miles per hour or more by midnight on the 26th and continued to howl through the morning of the 27th. Temperatures plummeted to a low of zero degrees during the storm, with wind chills approaching minus 50 degrees. Significant snowfall lasted for 31 hours at Indianapolis, with a storm total of 15.5 inches by the time snowfall stopped at 2.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, January 27th. The snowfall was followed by continued extreme cold and high winds, hampering recovery and relief efforts, and leaving much of Indiana and the region crippled for days. Across the Midwest, over three feet of snow fell in some areas, with wind gusts approaching 100 miles per hour. Snow drifted as high as 25 feet, burying homes and stopping a train on the tracks in Putnam County. C.R. Snyder, National Weather Service meteorologist in Ann Arbor, Michigan, said on January 30, 1978, quote, About 20 people died as a direct or indirect result of the storm, most due to heart attacks or traffic accidents. At least one person died of exposure in a stranded automobile. Many were hospitalized for exposure, mostly from homes that lost power and heat. About 100,000 cars were abandoned on Michigan highways, most of them in the southeastern part of the state. If you get a chance, look up images of the winter storm of 1978 on your favorite search engine. You'll see cleared streets and the cars driving down them, but you'll also see snow piled to the side that are at least 20 feet high, if not higher. While the storm of January 25th was a massive one, many states already had several inches of snow from the previous storms in the season. Again, for a kid who had no cares in the world, all of this snow was bliss. I remember the county road in front of our house covered in snow as deep as four feet in some places, as I jumped from drift to drift and built snow forts, while my poor mother attempted to shovel out our 100-foot-long driveway. Fortunately, a few days after the storm, a snowplow came through, clearing all the roads and allowing one of our good neighbors to clear everyone's driveways with his truck-mounted snowplow. From the Ottawa Herald, February 13, 1978, quote, A severe winter storm sweeping through Kansas has deposited a foot of snow in some locations, left some residents without power since Saturday, and brought transportation to a standstill over most of the state. The heaviest snowfall was reported in central Kansas. 12 inches of snow was reported on the ground at Russell and Concordia, Centralia, Frankfurt, Lawrence, and Lenexa had 10 inches. In Topeka, only about 10 or 15 percent of the state employees arrived for work this morning, and officials said the remainder would be sent home by noon. Officials for Topeka School District 501 said all schools in the district have been closed and the 18,000 students told to stay home. Kansas Highway officials reported Interstate 70 was snowpacked from border to border with blowing and drifting snows and making travel very hazardous. Unquote. The winter of 1978 reminded us once again that Mother Nature would do what she wanted, when she wanted. In my mind, as a third grader, this set up the expectation that every Christmas and every winter was going to be white, and sledding would be an activity that I'd be able to participate in for the rest of my life. But unlike the winter of 1976 and 1977... The winter of 77 and 78 impacted a much larger area than before. While the mail service was disrupted in Buffalo for a week in 1977, the multi-week shutdown of commerce had a huge impact for the publishing industry. At the time, comic books were printed in the Midwest and then shipped as quickly as possible to newsstands across the country. With delivery trucks unable to deliver magazines and comic books to the newsstands as often or in quantities usually expected, those who were able to get out and about discovered their favorite comic book was nowhere to be found. And not just for one week, but for weeks at a time. 
newspaper and magazine profits had already been shrinking since the 1930s. And having sales plummet due to the inability to get product on the stands was a recipe for disaster. Or as Paul Levitz, who in 1977, who had just become an editor on Adventure Comics, reflected in a 2017 interview at Newsarama.com, said, quote, The winter of 77 was a hideous winter in America, particularly in the Midwest, where the comics ship from. And newsstand sales went to hell. They'd already been lousy, but they got even dramatically worse. Chapter 5 The Cavalcade of Cancelled Comics In the early days of comics, when you released something new, you would make money, make a lot of money, or make no money at all. But as the interest in and profitability of comics began to fall, the philosophy moved to making money, losing money, or losing a lot of money. And for experimental comics, the risk was even greater. The only way to win the comic book war was through flooding the newsstands with products. Think of it this way. If you had 100 titles that each sold 1,000 copies at 30 cents each, that's a total of 100,000 copies sold and a gross of $30,000. If you have 500 titles that each sold 500 copies at 30 cents each, that would be 250,000 copies sold with a gross of $75,000. It doesn't matter that you were selling half the number of copies per title, it was the bottom line of how much you made collectively. This is what DC Comics and presumably others were doing at the time. As overall sales of a title were falling off, you could simply put out more titles. Look, even ignoring the obvious cost increases associated with the cost of each title, that business plan seems a little shaky to use. But listen, I'll be honest with you, I see a lot of businesses today that still use that line of thinking when it comes to gross profits. Then there's the distribution process that was taking place during this time. The distributor would tell the publisher how many copies to publish before they would even consider carrying and shipping the book. Many of those books never left the warehouse because distributors were paid a flat fee regardless if they did their job or not. Think of it this way. If you were invoicing and getting paid for not doing your job, the incentive to let those comics sit in a warehouse makes perfect sense. Another of DC's plans for the DC explosion was to change the distribution system away from a flat fee, instead opting to pay the distributor a percentage of sales. Again, it's a concept that would have been adopted by all publishers, and eventually was, but at the time, it would have forced the distributors to actually do the work of getting the comics to the newsstands instead of throwing them in the river after getting payment from the publishers. There's a whole mafia entanglement issue with the early days of the comics industry and the fact that in 1977, DC's distributor was part of the Warner Brothers communications conglomerate, but that's a conversation we're going to have to have at another time. So if you followed the timeline closely, the announcement of the DC explosion happened in November 1977. The winter storms arrived between January and March of 1978, and the plan was to have all the new DC comics arrive in June of that year. Jack C. Harris commented on the winter storm in the October-November 1979 edition of Time Warp, saying, quote, People didn't venture into the elements. People stayed home. People didn't buy comics. Unquote. That quote can be found in the comic book implosion by Tomorrow's Publishing, which was an excellent resource for this series. When it comes to the timeline of printing and delivering comics, it can sometimes take a month or more for a comic to be sent from the publisher to the printer to the delivery service 
and then to the newsstands. There is a lot of advanced planning that needs to happen. And when it comes to receiving the payments from those comic book sales, it can take another month or even more for that money to come in and another month for the accountants to get a hold of the sales figures to see if money was made or money was lost. So from the time the process starts, it could be six to eight months before you have any real data. When the bean counter saw the extremely poor sales, word went up the chain of command and a decision was made. We can't spend more money on a losing venture. In fact, Warner Brothers was about to cut back. It was Warner Brothers chairman Bill Sarnoff and Warner Brothers communications director Jay Emmett that ordered the 40% cutback in titles in an attempt to stop the hemorrhaging profit losses. The decision was made without consulting Jeanette Kahn, who was out of town at the time the decision was finalized. Layoffs, while Kahn was still out of town, were also announced. Freelancers who were not under contract were let go in favor of those writers and artists who were. Larry Hama, Al Milgram, Tom DeFalco, and Frank Miller were let go. Most were instantly picked up by Marvel Comics. Hama would go on to create G.I. Joe comics for decades, and Frank Miller created his now-famous Daredevil run for Marvel. Editorial was reorganized. Titles were on the chopping block. Even Detective Comics, the title DC Comics was named for, was about to be axed had it not been for a passionate defense from Mike Gold. From the lead story of the Newswatch section in the Comics Journal number 41 from August 1978, quote, In an unprecedented move that has caused waves of shock and consternation to ripple through the comics industry, DC Comics has initiated a massive cutback by canceling 17 titles and postponing indefinitely four new titles already scheduled for publication. DC has laid off five full-time staffers and has changed its 50-cent 25-page story format to a 40-cent 17-page story format. Unquote. DC would cancel Army at War, All-Star Comics, Batman Family, Battle Classics, Black Lightning, Claw, Doorway to Nightmare, Dynamic Classics, Firestorm, House of Secrets, Commandy or Commandy, Our Fighting Forces, Secrets of Haunted House, Showcase, Star Hunters, Steel, and The Witching Hour. Pour one out for those, for those titles. Four other titles, Demand Classics, The Deserter, The Vixen, and Western Classics, which were set for a summer 1978 release, would not ship. The much-publicized Swamp Thing revival and Mike Grill's Star Slayer were shelved. While it's easy to blame the accountants for freaking out and jumping the gun on something that could have been a huge success... From a financial perspective, it was probably a sound business decision. The DC explosion was a gamble. The success of the initiative was complete speculation. While DC Comics planned to release new comics, those new comics came with a cost. The cost of new writers, artists, and editors, and the business costs associated with them. Printing costs, paper costs, shipping costs, and of course, delivery costs. When looking at the future costs of a project especially one as ambitious as the DC explosion. And then comparing that to the existing sales data, the prospect of losing even more money from a fiscal perspective is something that shouldn't be ignored. While there have been some really great social commentary stories that have come out of comic book publishers over the years, corporations, and yes, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and even Archie Comics are corporations, corporations tend to be risk-averse. If it looks like you're going to be losing a lot of money, companies tend to put an end to what's going on as quickly as possible. But at the same time, I believe accountants and the higher-ups probably should have considered the role the winter storms played in the low sales that not only plagued DC Comics, but every other comic publisher at the time. 
again. Mike Gold, this time in the August 1978, the Comics Journal number 41, said, quote, Everybody got slaughtered during the blizzard, and quite frankly, that didn't help matters. Sales of comic books have fallen off dramatically over the last decade. It's a question of taking what we perceive as radical measures to stabilize that steady decline. Magazines as a whole are in a very precarious position in that regard, and comics in particular, because they are a non-essential item. People perceive they need TV Guide to the tune of 19 million copies an issue. But comics aren't perceived as that necessary. Unquote. According to Gold, DC's dollar comic book sales dropped less than any other comic sold between February and March of 1978. This may have been due to the unwillingness of wholesalers and retailers to stock 25, 35, 40, and 50 cent comics that would still result in lower profits per sale compared to a book that sold for a dollar. If more money can be made from a $1 edition of Time and Newsweek and less is being made from 50 cent Superman comics, there may be additional truths to be revealed in that line of thinking. But what about Superman the movie? Wasn't it supposed to play a big role in the DC explosion? It was scheduled to arrive in theaters on the 40th anniversary of Action Comics number one, and at the same time, a plethora of new comics were supposed to hit the stands, right? Remember what Mike Tiefenbacher wrote in February of 1978? Quote, Unless the film is a real turkey, I'd expect sales on the Superman comic to double with a coattail effect on the rest of the line. If Superman is in demand, a 50-cent price tag isn't going to deter a potential buyer. Unquote. If you're a film nerd... You know Superman the movie didn't land in theaters on June 1978, but rather was pushed to a December 1978 release by the studio. At the time, Superman the movie was the most expensive film that had ever been made, costing the studio an estimated $55 million and an additional $7 million for marketing. It also featured some of the most groundbreaking special effects to be seen on the screen at the time. You will believe a man can fly. The original plan was to shoot Superman and Superman 2 at the same time, but tension on the set between Richard Donner and the studio over shooting schedules and budget slowed the production to the point that Richard Lester was brought in to finish Superman 2 so Donner could complete the first film. Production on the movie didn't end until October 1978, so it's amazing the movie even made it into theaters before the year ended. Superman the movie would go on to be Warner Brothers' most successful movie of all time at the time of release, bringing in $43.7 million in the first 18 days of release. Including re-releases, it went on to gross $134.5 million in the United States and Canada, and $166 million internationally, totaling $300.5 million worldwide. Had Warner Brothers continued to believe in the DC explosion, and Superman had released on time... Would we be looking back now and telling business students around the world to take greater risks? Again, companies, especially large corporations, tend to be risk-averse, so maybe not. And, and let's be clear, the winter of 1977-78 didn't just harm DC Comics. All publishing suffered, including Marvel Comics, who between September 1978 and 1979 canceled 21 titles, including Devil Dinosaur, Machine Man, The Human Fly, Marvel Classic Comics, Kid Colt Outlaw, Marvel Triple Action, Ms. Marvel, Tomb of Dracula, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Howard the Duck, Invaders, Nova, Rawhide Kid, and Red Sonja. It also canceled six titles in its Hanna-Barbera line. Why aren't we making a huge deal over Marvel's canceled titles? Well, there's probably a little bit of schadenfreude going on. It was DC Comics who made the big proclamation that it would change the industry. It was DC Comics that announced dramatic price increases. It was DC Comics that planned to change the distribution methods. So it makes sense that it was DC Comics 
that everyone would look at when comic sales fell. There's a Yiddish expression that translated says, quote, when man plans, God laughs, unquote. While this is a good metaphor to explain why our well-laid-out plans don't go accordingly, we can look at the DC explosion and the subsequent DC implosion as a real-world example of it playing out. While DC Comics could account for the cost of paper increasing, changes in distribution, and even factor in the gas crisis and how it would impact deliveries, no one could predict the impact two winter storms would play in diffusing the DC explosion. By the end of 1978, DC Comics only launched eight new series and canceled 31. The plan of releasing 57 new comics between 1975 and 1978 actually resulted in a net loss of 23 comics over the time period. While Mike Tiefenbacher commented in the Comic Reader number 160 in September 1978, quote, One thing becomes clear with the reduction of titles, and that is that DC is now looking forward to the day when the dollar comic is their status quo format. The books seem to be doing significantly better than the rest of the line to expand it to six titles, so there seems to be nothing to the idea that a dollar price tag will put off customers. And with the elimination of the bi-monthly, it appears that the dollar format is the only one that will allow experimentation and the use of the B features that fans love. The question remains... What happens when price increase time comes around next year? Does the dollar book go to 48 pages, add advertising, or go to $1.25? And if DC decides to go entirely to that format, does that eliminate a sizable chunk of their juvenile audience who don't have a buck to spend? Unquote. Well, by the end of 1978, things were looking bleak for DC Comics. And the initial idea of shutting down publishing and simply becoming an IP farm is... Starting to sound like a pretty good idea, right? Fear not, dear listener. DC Comics has even more plans up its sleeve. Chapter 6. Rebound. With such a devastating blow, many people and businesses might decide to call it quits and never try anything new ever again. For DC Comics, after the implosion it appeared to do just that. A month or two after new comics appeared, page counts went back to 17 pages and cover prices dropped, though prices would still be on the rise again in the next decade. Issues went back to short stories as the company regrouped and figured out what to do next, and for many outside the industry, it appeared that DC was the big loser. But let's think about this. Many of the plans that Jeanette Kahn laid out in her publish Oriole were not simply format and price changes, but rather a challenge for editorial to take the company forward and plan bigger and better things. For years, Marvel Comics, its biggest competitor, was telling stories that were intertwined, with elements being dispersed here and there until everything came together. By the 1980s, Marvel Comics had Frank Miller working on Daredevil, Chris Claremont wrote Days of Future Past and God Loves Man Kills for the X-Men, and Jim Shooter's The Corvox Saga in The Avengers showed what epic comic stories could be like. And while Marvel appeared to be eating DC's lunch, DC was quietly doing some pretty amazing stories as well, as Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill brought Batman back into the spotlight with Daughter of the Demon storyline, and it was the 1982 release of the Great Darkness Saga that looks to be the moment when DC figured it all out. The moment when it realized it could tell a long story, spread out over multiple issues, and then have it all come together as the Legion of Superheroes took on Darkseid. 
The five-issue event culminated in a 41-page battle that not only concluded Jack Kirby's fourth world event, but also featured a $1 cover price that did little to deter buyers who wanted to read the climax of the story by Paul Levitz and Keith Giffen. It not only reestablished Darkseid as one of the, if not the greatest villain in the DC Universe, I believe it gave DC the courage to move forward with bigger events like George Perez and Marv Wolfman's The Judas Contract in 1984's Teen Titans and its biggest gamble in 1986's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Though almost a decade later, DC Comics was fulfilling its plan to, quote, do really full-length stories with fully developed subplots and characterizations, unquote. With these epic stories came price increases as well. After the implosion, comic book prices stabilized around 40 cents an issue, and some titles retained the $1 cover price. By 1985, comic prices jumped once again to 75 cents, and then five years later to $1.75, and the price jumps continued, going from $2.50 in 1995 to $2.95 in 2000, $2.99 in 2005, $3.99 in 2010, and today it isn't uncommon to see comics on the stands with a $4.99 price tag. DC's plan to set prices at 50 cents and a dollar in 1977 might have seemed like a lot, but as we've already discussed, dollar comics sold better and would bring in more profit for everyone involved. Had DC Comics been able to set the price in 1977 and then followed the normal inflationary prices every year after, there wouldn't have been just radical jumps in pricing in the 90s and the 2000s. That $1 comic in 1977 today would have a cover price of, are you ready for this? $4.89. So maybe DC was right. DC wanted the distribution model to change, and it did. Distributors were paid based on percentage of sales. And while there were dozens of distributors in the 70s and 80s, as newsstands started to close in the direct market, aka comic book shops, started to gain a foothold, Distributors merged or were bought out, leading to Diamond Comic Distributors becoming the largest distributor of comic books in the direct market. Superman the movie made the world believe a man could fly, and the sequels it spawned showed studios that franchise superhero movies could work. Though the quality of the Superman films dropped with each release, 1989's Batman from Tim Burton and starring Michael Keaton and Kim Basinger really solidified comic book movies as tentpole films and potential blockbusters for the studios. Without Superman and Batman leading the way as blockbusters, we may never have been inundated with wave after wave of superhero films that we have today. While DC Comics had many major wins following the implosion of 1978, there were also several downturns in the industry that, as we look back, we should have seen coming. From a business perspective, we see what works at another company and we try to copy it. Sometimes that copy is inferior to the original. Sometimes it's cheaper. But if company X is doing something that increases sales, then by gosh, if our company does it too, we'll have the same success. This happens in everything from auto manufacturing to the cereal we eat in the morning to clothing and, yes, even the comic book industry. Especially the comic book industry. Take Crisis on Infinite Earths, the biggest event in comics in the 1980s. The mega crossover event with ties to nearly every single comic book in the line. It ended up pushing publishers to do their own next big event, followed by an even bigger event, and then an even bigger event. Marvel did it to itself with Secret Wars, and Secret Wars 2, and Secret Invasion, and so on. 
DC has never been able to escape its biggest event as the flash of two worlds in 1961 led to Crisis on Earth 1 and Crisis on Earth 2 in 1963 and Crisis on Earth 3 in 1964, Crisis on Earth Prime in 1982, and of course, Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1985, which also kicked off a resetting of the timeline and constant continuity cleanups in Armageddon 2001 and 1991, Zero Hour Crisis in Time 1994, Identity Crisis in 2004, followed immediately by 2005's Infinity Crisis, Final Crisis in 2008, Flashpoint in 2011, The New 52, DC Rebirth, Dark Knight's Metal, Heroes in Crisis in 2018, Dark Knight's Death Metal, Infinite Frontier in 2021, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Flashpoint Beyond. The New 52, which was a way of rebooting the DC Universe, was a way of honoring and paying tribute to the DC explosion, which is a story in and of itself. And if the death of Supergirl and Barry Allen in Crisis on Infinite Earths were big sellers, DC's The Death of Superman broke the comic book industry. Suddenly, killing a comic book character and bringing them back months later became a way of generating publicity over the character's death, followed a while later with even more publicity that the character was returning with an all-new look, an all-new origin, or a new power set. It got to the point that even Marvel Comics announced that it would be killing a major character once a quarter. When a comic book reader goes to the store and sees X-Men number 472 or Superman 986, it can be intimidating to pick up that issue, as it gives the impression that reading the previous issues are a prerequisite to understanding what's going on in the story. With each rebirth of a character, with each universe reset that a crisis brings on, new series can be spawned with new number one issues on the stands. Picking up a number one issue is more welcoming than figuring out if Teen Titans number 13 is a new story arc, or if the reader will need to dive into the back issue bin looking for the previous 12 issues. If sales figures show number one issues sell better than the third, tenth, or twelfth issue, you can bet that every couple of years, a new creative team will be brought on, and the series will reboot with a new first issue. A perfect jumping-on point for readers. We've seen time and time again the comic book industry repeating the same cycle of business decisions— Sometimes fully aware of what happened in the past, but sometimes completely unaware of what happened. A great example of this is the COVID pandemic that literally shut down the world between 2020 and 2022. Stores were closed. The single distributor of comic books shut down. And for many publishers, the word to creatives was to stop work immediately. The pandemic of the 2020s is radically different from the winters of 76, 77, and 78, but for me it appeared to be a very similar pattern of dealing with catastrophe. But this time, I think DC has come out on the other side a bit of a winner learning from those winter storms. Instead of telling everyone to stop work, DC moved a lot of its comics to digital firsts, allowing comic fans to continue their comic book reading online. For stores that were still open or still delivering physical comics to customers, DC Comics decided to change the distribution model again but moving away from a single distributor to multiple distributors who were willing or could work through the worldwide health crisis. As of this recording, I still see the effects of the pandemic on book releases. Books that are two, three, and sometimes six months late from some publishers, I only see a few titles having a month delay from DC Comics. Of course, this is all correlation, not causation speculation, but there does appear to be a pattern. DC's New 52, while not a complete success in the eyes of long-term comic readers, did open the door to new readers to step up and experience the joys of the four-colored panel. At the same time, though, other initiatives by DC Comics seem to have fallen to the same curse as the DC Explosion. DC Comics attempted to introduce two lines for kids, DC Zoom, 
for those ages 8 to 12, and DC Inc. for middle-age readers. The two lines were announced in 2017 with, in my opinion, some really great books that could have held their own and could have really targeted the school book market and competed with the likes of Dog Cop and Captain Underpants. Dan DiDio, DC's co-publisher from 2010 to 2020, explained, quote, That was DC testing the waters and wondering what a young adult book would be from DC Comics. We realized that ultimately there was a strong creative talent pool to tell those stories, but we decided we had to change the format in regards to how it appeared. That's when the DC Inc. and DC Zoom books wound up being created. We knew this was the right direction. We know there's a market for this, but the periodical might not be the best way to deliver it. That audience might not find the periodical, but let's create it in a book. They're so much more comfortable reading in that style. Unquote. That's from the oral history of the DC Comics infamous New 52 reboot on the Polygon website from 2021. But in 2018, AT&T bought Warner Brothers, and just as DC Zoom and DC Inc. were launching, the new owners decided to shut down those imprints completely. In 2020, the company attempted to rebrand those books under new banners, but to date, those titles really haven't had the traction that they did when they were announced in 2017. It all seems so familiar, and that same story is told time and time again, and now that Discovery Networks owns Warner Brothers, the story's going to repeat again and again and again. Whether it's Jeanette Kahn or Diane Nelson, Paul Levitz or Dan DiDio, each new person who steps in to run the comic book publisher will have their own take and their own direction in the way the company should be run. It doesn't take a soothsayer to know that this story will repeat again in the future. Not only at DC, but at Marvel, at Valiant, at Boom Studios, Oni Press, and every company that is out there. The same decisions are going to be made. Companies will attempt to capture lightning in a bottle again and again. McRib, I'm looking at you. Hopefully, though, the next time this happens, the shock, the cries of outrage or applause, and the frustrations we as comic book fans have when confronted with the next big thing will not be as severe. Because we've seen it all before, and we're going to see it all again. Thank you for checking out the Major Spoilers Entertainment production of the DC Implosion. I'm Steven Schleicher. This has been a work that has been in the process for a while. The research that it took, putting my own spin on things, and then presenting it in a way that I thought would be entertaining to you was a real work of effort, and I'm, I'm glad you made it all the way through. If you have questions or comments, please visit our Discord server. You can join it completely for free. There's a link in the show notes. Everybody there is super welcoming. And if you enjoyed our look at the DC implosion and want to see more productions like this, then I would really encourage you to head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash major spoilers, where you can contribute as little as $5 a month to keep this show and all of the shows that we do at Major Spoilers in production and hopefully have more of these types of shows in the future. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Why? Because I know that you love comics, and I do too. And we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2023 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.